Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with strength and conditioning coach, writer, and elite drug-free powerlifter, Greg Knuckles. Hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today I have Greg Knuckles on the line. Two reasons I wanted to get Greg on. Firstly, to offer, um, well, add to the diverse guests we have on. And obviously Greg's uh, heavily involved with powerlifting and we've never had anything like that on before. And secondly, because of his website and the the blog that he writes uh, at gregknuckles.com and his strength and science uh, website. So if you haven't checked it out, please check it out. The first time I looked at it, the two recommendations that popped up on the site were Chad Wesley Smith from Juggernaut Training Systems and Brett Contreras. So that kind of sums up um, Greg's kind of quality in, in, in his writing. The chat I have with Greg focuses around a couple of articles that he's written. Uh, he goes into lots of depth on periodization um, and goes through different systems and kind of what's worked for him uh, as a raw powerlifter. We also go into a bit of depth with regards to training to failure and also Greg's philosophy and his, how he structured his programs catering for general population and an athletic population. He also wrote a really interesting article on bar speed, so I get Greg's uh, personal experience from that and he looks at some of the, some of the literature behind it. Before I get onto the chat with Greg, just want to say if you want to keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. You can also download the Podomatic app if you don't have iTunes, and that means you can uh, download all the previous episodes and listen on the go. You can also go over to paceyperformance.co.uk, and all the previous episodes are on there. And all episodes are now on YouTube, and you can get them at paceyperformance.co.uk or subscribing to the Pacey Performance YouTube channel. And you can also follow me on Twitter at PaceyPerform and you can keep up to date with everything that's going on the podcast uh, as, I, as I put it up and it goes live. And after all that, I hope you enjoy the chat with Greg. Hi guys, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Uh, I've got Greg Knuckles on the line coming from the United States of America. So just before I introduce Greg, I'll let Greg introduce himself. Um, just want to encourage people to have a little look on his website we'll get into it a little bit later on but there's such good content which is why i wanted to get greg uh on the podcast so welcome greg do you want to give us a little bit uh on your background your experience and your education sure um my name is greg knuckles uh i'm a power lifter and strength coach um based off the east coast of america um i've been lifting for Dang, I guess it's been about a decade now. Um, competing in powerlifting, I've been coaching for about the last four years. Um, I have a bachelor's in exercise science, going back for my master's next month, actually. Uh, that's about all I got. <laughs> so what's the master's in? Um, exercise and nutrition science. Okay, cool. So just go into a little bit of your background with your, your powerlifting, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, my athletic background is pretty much in every sport. I played everything growing up, always liked sports, uh, wasn't particularly good at them. I was 
little fat kid. And then about sixth grade, I grew all that I was going to, like 16 inches in a year, um, half a meter. Uh, and so then the doctor said, hey, you're going to be really tall. And I was like, that's awesome. So I took up basketball full time. Uh, but I didn't know that I was done growing. So then I was like, screw you, doctors. You lied to me. Um, but so that helped me, uh, that helped me lose weight. I play basketball five or six hours a day, most of the time. Um, and I think that kind of helped lay a foundation of general athleticism. Uh, and I also played football in my freshman year of high school. I sustained the last in a series of really, really bad concussions to the point that the doctor said, you can't have another concussion or you'll probably sustain permanent brain damage. Um, but pretty recently to that point, I had started looking to improve at basketball and football and I had a natural aptitude for that. So that's just what I took up full time. Um, and so yeah, I've been, I've been lifting since I was right around 13 or had just turned 14 pretty seriously. And I started competing in powerlifting when I was 14. So it was about nine years ago. Um, and I've just been at it ever since. Cool. So are you uh, affiliated to a federation over there? Uh, I just go to whatever meet is closest within driving distance. Okay. Um, I don't really travel to compete. So I've, I've competed in quite a few federations. Um, most of the meets I've done have been uh, in the 100% Raw Federation. Uh, I've done a few in the APF, one in the IPA. I did the first Raw Unity meet. And I want to say there's one more that I'm forgetting, but at least four or five different federations. Cool. Right, so let's get on to the meat of it. I just, I mean, I fired you over some uh, a couple of questions, but uh, we'll kind of work our way through them. And if it goes off track, it goes off track. But um, obviously, you're a, you're a strong dude. Um, so you've always been naturally strong. Yeah, I have. Um, a lot of that just runs in the family. Well, mom's side of the family. Uh, everyone on that side of the family is an absolute monster. Um, I I joke with other powerlifters all the time that. Um, one of the main reasons I took up lifting is just so I want to be front of the litter at family reunions and they think I'm joking, but I'm actually not joking because I still am. Um, <laughs> just, just absolute monsters on that side of the family. Uh, so yeah, a lot of my strength is, is natural. Um, the one thing that did not come naturally to me though is squatting. I think that's the reason I have a mild obsession with squatting now. Um, bench and deadlift, I, I picked up really easily. But squatting, it took me a few years for it to really click. Um, I'm not really built very well for it. Um, and I have just, just terrible ankle mobility. When I was playing basketball, I had, I had a compound fracture and tore several tendons. And uh, the doctors, they looked at the MRI and they basically said, we're not even going to operate because there's so much wrong. Like we really don't think we could do much with this. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Whatever. So my left ankle is basically fused. Like I have full plantar flexion, but very, very limited dorsiflexion and try everything I could to fix it, but none of it really works. Um, so squatting was, uh, it was always difficult because I have 
long legs and a short torso. And so when you have that and your knees also can't really track forward, um, you're going to run into some issues. So um, what I've ended up with is like a super, super wide stance squat, which I'm lucky to have the mobility to pull off. But it was something that took years and years of effort to get good at and get comfortable with. So um, that's, that's why it's my favorite lift just because the other two came naturally, but squats were always more of an uphill battle. So you talk about your, your wide stance to kind of get around the, the ankle mobility issue. Um, what kind of things do you employ to get around that issue with regards to working your hips a lot more? Yeah, and the, the biggest issue was always um, just strength at range of motion, not necessarily mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can drop about four inches away from a full split without really doing any hip mobility work. Um, but obviously that's a very challenging range of motion for your adductors to go through. So it used to be that that was the only way I could hit depth, but I would be super, super weak when I hit depth. So um, a lot of pause squats helps that just um, getting really comfortable in that position and also um, just really, just really hammering that bottom, that bottom range of motion, like Anderson squats from pins um, set below parallel. So I would have to do sports without relying on my stretch reflex. Mm-hmm. Um, and that combined with the pause work really, uh, really helps strengthen my adductors. So if it's in that fashion. Mm. So have you kind of employed any methods that, I mean, looking looking at your blog and kind of reading quite a few articles that you've put out, uh, obviously everything you, I think you, just correct me if I'm wrong, but strength science is the um, kind of basis of what, you, what you're talking about in your blog. Um, is there anything that you, any methods that you've yeah. used which kind of weren't surrounded in the science and the research that have, you know, either gone good or bad? Well, spine is kind of a loaded term, especially when you're talking about strength training, because um, you can, depending on how narrowly or broadly you want to define the term, because if you're talking about it just in terms of like what what you can get and apply from a single study, um, in terms of elite strength athletics, there's really not much that you can just like cite a specific study for. And a lot of that is just, a constraint of doing the day-to-day work of science. Cause I mean, if someone came to me and they were like, Hey, we're trying to do a study on elite strength athletes. We're going to need, like, you're going to have to follow our training program for 16 weeks. And we're looking to see if this variable affects this. I'd probably say no, because I don't want to give up 16 weeks of my training to someone who, you know, isn't programming in a way like specifically to make me stronger, but is trying to apply like a standardized set of variables. Um, and I mean, that's, that's pretty common with competitive athletes. So um, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a fair amount and there's becoming more and more everyday good science on untrained populations or moderately trained populations, but it's hard to directly apply science to really highly trained populations because, um, I mean, they just haven't been studied directly that much. Um, but then if you want to use um, kind of a more broader definition of applying things scientifically, 
we're just talking about basic principles of physiology and biomechanics. And it's really, I feel like you could, if you understand the science well enough, you could make an argument for almost any practice to be scientific to, to some degree or another. Um, the one thing that I do that I haven't seen any other people doing that I'm unaware of very much research on at all is I really, really like breathing pulse squats, which is just where you squat down with a load and at the bottom you, instead of like holding your breath and trying to maintain as much intra-abdominal pressure as possible, you inhale and exhale fully a few times. Um, that, I guess you could see that as an application of um, the uh, reflexive neuromuscular training principles, um, but I haven't seen that specifically talked about in the literature any at all. Um, and that's something I feel like that's benefited me tremendously. Um, as far as squatting goes, I think that's the most highly specific core work you can do because so when you're squatting at the bottom of the squat, you need to do three things. You need to extend your knees, you need to extend your hips, and as you're doing that, you have to maintain torso rigidity to transfer that force to the bar. Um, so you can look at uh, you can look at a movement with similar demands, like a leg press, where you also have to extend your knees and hips, but you don't have to worry about transferring that force to the bar. And most people can leg press quite a bit more than they can squat. Um, and obviously, there's uh, there's just mechanical features for that as well. I'm just like, because it's on a 45 degree angle. So if you take the, the sign of the vertical component of 45 degrees, then you still wind up with like 71% of the force you're applying in the vertical direction. Um, but most people can still like press at least 30% more than they squat. And really the major difference there is just that, you know, the force transfer is directly into the sled on the leg press, whereas for the squat, it has to be transferred through your torso. Um, and so the breathing pulse squats, uh, what they do is instead of being able to rely on a combination of intra-abdominal pressure and muscular contraction to keep your torso rigid, as you exhale, you have to only rely upon the musculature. Um, so I feel like that strengthens those muscles in a manner very specific to squatting. So then when you are doing regular squats again and you are holding your breath through the full movement, um, you kind of get the additive effect of stronger core, mus core musculature with the intra-abdominal pressure added back on. And I feel like that really helps force transfer to the bar. So have you tried that with clients? Um, yes, I have. I only use it on uh, on more highly trained clients. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, simply because if someone doesn't know how to squat well, holding their breath, and then you tell them to exhale, that's a, that's a recipe for an injury. Um, but someone who has a fair amount of experience, especially someone who I can coach in person um, as opposed to distance coaching, um, someone like that who's fairly highly trained and has already mastered the movement, um, I use it use it a fair amount with them. Um, obviously starting with very, very conservative loads and building from there. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Now I just want to move on a little bit. Um, again, talking about your, uh, 
your blog and a couple of articles that you've written on periodization. Do you want to give us your thoughts on uh, various methods, your experience, uh, and how some may be more beneficial than others? I know you've written quite extensively on uh, the daily undulating program. So do you want to give us your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so first off, I think when you're talking about different kinds of periodization, I think you're starting with a misnomer from the get-go. Um, and this this is uh, coming from an article that I wrote for Juggernaut Training Systems. Um, there really aren't different types of periodization. There are different types of features that you use in a periodized training program. Uh, so daily undulating periodization isn't necessarily a unique form of periodization. Um, it's just taking the concept of undulation, which is um, changing volume and intensity on some sort of time scale. And instead of applying it on, say, like a weekly or monthly time scale, it, you're applying it session to session. Um, so, uh, and research is somewhat mixed on that. Um, it, there, there have been several studies with untrained athletes that showed it was really, really effective, um, much more so than um, less frequent undulation. Um, with more highly trained athletes, uh, there's, there's a split that still seems to favor more frequent undulation. Um, but really the main question you're asking there is how can you expose someone to um, a stressor that's going to cause an adaptation while um, while mitigating fatigue as much as possible? And fatigue comes from two sources. It's both physical and psychological. Uh, and I really think the main advantage of daily undulating periodization um, is just that it keeps training fresher. Um, like in... Uh, in one of the first phase down, they were comparing, uh, I think it was sets of four, sets of six, and sets of eight. And the group that did daily undulating, they did uh, sets of eight on Monday, sets of six on Wednesday, and sets of four on Friday, and then just started over the next week heavier. Uh, the group that did um, linear, they did four straight weeks of only doing three sets of eight every single time they trained and then four weeks of only doing sets of six every time they trained and then four weeks of only doing sets of four every time they trained and if you actually if you actually think about like physiologically how different of a stress is it to your body sets of six versus sets of eight it's not a huge difference and then also sets of six versus sets of four. Again, it's not a tremendous difference, but you know, when you're doing the same sets and the same reps, every time you go to the gym day in and day out, week in and week out one, you just get tired of counting to the same number every time. And two, uh, since they were doing those in four week blocks, at some point you'll probably hit a point where you can't just straight, you know, add, five or 10 pounds to the bar every time you go in the gym. And so then you're dealing with motivational factors as well, because if you fail to add weight this time you're in the gym, then you're going to be motivated the next time you come to the gym and probably exert less effort. If you know, you have the same workout again, that you just failed on. Um, so I do think there are physiological factors. Um, the repeated bounce effect where if you're exposed to the same stress 
um, multiple times in succession, every time you're exposed to it, you respond less robustly. I certainly think that's a factor, um, but I don't think you can discount um, the effects of motivation and psychological stress that training imposes as well. So the question to ask isn't necessarily like what discrete type of periodization is the best. Um, purely from a physical standpoint, even though that obviously does matter. The question to ask is like, how can you expose someone to enough stress to continually cause adaptation while keeping them motivated and engaged in the training process? And I think that's really one of the main benefits that um, data ventilation offers, just keeps training more fresh and exciting for most people. So when you when you say most people, do, do you think that do you think it it favours uh, a certain type of? I mean, we're talking about kind of getting onto athletes a little bit here. Um, a certain type of athlete, so like um, someone that's performing um, maybe maybe twice weekly or once weekly, or someone that's performing like in kind of the thing that you do, maybe every couple of months. Does it favour one or the other, or can it work both ways? Um. Well, I think uh, I think one of the major factors you have to deal with there is just personality type. Um, some people, and I would be one of these, um, some people really thrive on novelty. Um, I get bored really fast if I'm doing the same thing all the time. Um, I mean, to the, I don't, I do my own training and like, so I don't have a coach or a team pushing me. And um, if I write myself a training program, not keeping who I am in mind, um, you know, I'll do something for like two weeks and then just say, screw it. I'm not training anymore. This is so boring. I don't want to lift, um, which that's probably not a particularly good thing. Um, but then other people, they really thrive on doing the same thing all the time. Um, you know, because if you're, you know, if you have, drastically different workouts daily or weekly, then, you know, the coach could know what they're looking at and know that you know, if you're performing at this level on this workout, then um, when you ultimately go to max, you're going to be stronger. But the athlete wants to see, hey, I did, you know, this many sets with this many reps this week, and I did the same sets and the same reps with more weight now, so I'm, I'm stronger. So you get that you know, more specific feedback from the training. Um, so some people, they really, really like that. The doing the same thing all the time. So when they make progress, it's very, very obvious that they're making progress. Um, so that's, that's another thing as well. Um, you know, just, just knowing who your athletes are and how quickly they're going to get burned out by doing the same thing all the time. Um, but in terms of how frequently you compete, uh, I think that is something that tends to favor a model with more undulation. Um, because like, I think that's one reason why for so long, just straight linear periodization was so popular in powerlifting, because you only have to be at peak performance for one day, every four to six months or something. Um, Whereas, you know, if you're a team sport athlete and you're playing every week or a couple times a week, then one huge peak doesn't really do much for you because you have to be able to maintain that performance. Um, 
So more frequent variation tends to uh, tends to cause more stable adaptations instead of something like a straight linear setup that is designed to give you one major peak and you to just be at peak performance for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. No, that's cool. Um, that's really good. Um, just <clears throat> moving on a little bit, not wanting to jump around too much, but um, one of the things that I fired over, which is something that I've been um, seeing a lot more recently, just basically when I'm seeing guys in the gym uh, and I'm looking at more of a more of a sitcom these days, but um, seems to be a bit of misinterpretation when um, prescribing loads. Because I see every day the same guys will come in and they'll probably, obviously it's a Monday, so they're going to bench press. And every day that seems to be balls out, eyeballs popping out of the head, um, it, it, from your thoughts on this, is this the is this the way to to get stronger and stronger as in going to failure? Um, what are your thoughts on this? I know you've seen kind of similar things over there. Yeah, I think um, I think in a situation like that, you have to look at you have to look at several different training variables. Um, if someone is just training a lift once per week, then I do think they need to really approach that with um, you know, a very high intensity, very high volume approach, just simply because you're only exposing your body to that stressor once a week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're going to cause a robust enough adaptation that um, you're stronger the next week after only being exposed to that stress once, then I do think you need more volume and more more intensity for that to happen. Um, Whereas if you're training with like a more high frequency approach, if you're training a like two, three, four, even more times a week, then um, volume tends to be more of an individual thing. Some people can handle a lot of volume day in and day out, but you definitely, like you're talking about people, their eyeballs popping out of their head. <laughs> you definitely do have to dial back um, that level of effort um, simply because most people, they just, that's just not something they can maintain. Uh, maybe bench is different, but certainly on squats and deadlifts. Like if you do a true max effort squat or deadlift, um, you'll probably not be able to have that same quality of training if you try to do the same thing again two days later. Mm-hmm. So um, I think when, when you're talking about people training with just 100% intensity, not necessarily the uh, academic definition of intensity in terms of weight on the bar, but intensity in terms of like, you know, really just going balls out. Um, that has to be moderated by uh, training frequency to a very large degree. And I do think for people who are only training a lift once a week, um, that might not be something that is necessary, but I don't think it's going to affect them negatively in the same way that it's going to affect someone who train the lift much more frequently. Mm-hmm. So if, yeah, I mean, just getting a little bit on your philosophy, really, um, when you're when you're training your clients. So what would be your kind of structure if they were training um, one lift multiple times a week? Um, are we talking multiple, like, two or multiple, like, five or six? Um, we'll go two to start with, then we'll go five or six later on. Okay, so two is typically just like a heavy day, light day. Um, Usually squats and deadlifts on the same day and bench and overhead on the same day. 
And so for squats and deadlifts, one day squat pretty heavily and deadlift quite a bit lighter and then flip flop it later in the week, have a heavy deadlift day combined with lighter squatting and same thing for bench and overhead. Um, and usually what I'll do is, um, I'll just have, I'll just do wave loading over the course of a month. Um, first week is usually lighter, more volume. Um, and by the fourth week, it's quite a bit heavier, but much lower volume. It's basically, it's a deload volume wise, but it's also the heaviest week. And then, um, usually just start over heavier, uh, going into the next month. Mm-hmm. So what, like you mentioned just a minute ago, what happens to the guys that are, that are uh, training that lift even more times a week, so three, four, five? Um, so that's something that, uh, again, I, I would generally not recommend that to someone who I was coaching from a distance, uh, just because a lot of people have, um, they don't really have a very good, uh, I guess, feel for their body. Um, I guess, I guess that's a very subjective term, but a lot of people just, they, they don't know how to differentiate between days that they should push it and days that they should take it a little easier. And when you're training a lift most days of the week, that's a distinction you really need to be able to make because some days are going to be great and some days are going to be lousy and you can't treat them as if they're the same. Um, that's something that again, coaching someone in person, you can, I mean, you can tell from the athlete's mood and how they're moving, um, whether it's a day to really push them harder, whether it's a day just to wrap it up early. Um, so yeah, I, I probably wouldn't, well, I don't recommend that to people who I can't coach in person. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how I structure it myself personally, um, I have a weight that's kind of my tell for the day. So for squats, that's usually um, with 405 um, based on one bar speed and then two, just subjectively how my body feels. Like, do I have a creak in my knee that isn't usually there or um, I've torn a muscle in my low back before my QL. And um, when I'm starting to get overreached a little bit, it tends to tighten up and not loosen regardless what I do. So uh, that's something like if I feel that start to cramp, that's something that tells me it's a day to take it a little bit easier. Um, But yeah, for training more frequently, um, it really requires you to know your body well and, um, you know, not, you have to take what it gives you. You can't, you can't force it to do anything. Whereas if you're training a lift less frequently and today is the day that you squat this week, then, uh, you have a little less leeway. Uh, you know, you might can push it a little bit harder, like maybe 10% harder or take it 10% easier. But if this is the day this week, you train your squat, you can't just, I mean, you can't just walk in the gym and say, Oh, today I don't feel good. I'm not squatting because I mean, then you basically have like two weeks between squat workouts, which, um, is might be okay once in a while, but is not something, uh, is not something you should make like a frequent, um, a frequent feature of your training. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned bar speed, uh, just a minute ago. Is that something that you kind of track or is it just a feel that you get? Um, it used to be by feel. Lately, I've been using the app BarSense. Uh, right now, it's only on Android. 
but uh, it works quite well. Um, you just uh, set the phone's camera up to the side and um, it finds it finds where the bar is and it, it well tracks speed. Um, <laughs> and so what I'm what I'm looking for on that is 405 for me tends to move on average about um, 0.7 meters per second. Like the concentric part tends to be about 0.7 meters per second. Um, and so an acceptable range there tends to be anything from like 0.65 to 0.75 meters per second. If it's slower than 0.65 meters per second, I'll usually take it for another rep just to make sure. And if on the second rep, it's still slower than 0.65 meters per second, that tells me it's a day that I need to let my body rest and recoup. And if it's, if it's faster than 0.65 meters per second, then I tend to keep working on up. So you mentioned just a minute ago that you you wouldn't kind of miss a miss a squat workout because of the the kind of big gap in in between the two weeks. So how would you modify your training to 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 keep some intensity there, but not completely miss a workout because it's obviously two weeks till your next one. Um. So there there are two ways to look at it. Um, if you're training someone one on one, then you can make you know, kind of in the moment adjustments, you know, instead of maybe that being a really heavy day or a really high volume day, uh, you could stick with maybe 70, 75% and do, you know, pretty, pretty easy sets of five ish, um, six or eight sets until you see bars, bar speeds start to slow down. Like as soon as you start a little, start seeing a little fatigue accumulating, you cut the session, but nothing that's too terribly stressful because then you still expose them to some stimulus, but you're not, um, you're not throwing another very, very large stressor that they have to, um, recover from. Um, again, and this, this is another reason why I very much prefer training people in person as opposed to on the internet. Uh, cause you, you just can't, you can't do that when you're training someone from a distance. Um, for that, something that I tend to use is I'll have, um, I'll have like a max rep set with a submaximal weight and, um, either I'll put it at the beginning, like let's say it's 80% or something, which for most people, that's about an eight rep max or something. If they can do seven or eight reps, then the subsequent volume is by the book, just how the workout was written. If it's more than that, then I'll usually have an option for them to push a little harder. If it's like five or six reps with something that they should be able to do for eight, then um, there will be an option to drop the volume for the day. So it has to be, you know, you can't, you can't just go by feel. It has to be much more regimented, but um, that's kind of a workaround that you can use. Have a base workout for the day and a workout that's a little harder if it's a great day and a workout that's a little easier if it's a not so good day. Mm-hmm. No, that's cool. I mean, I've kept you for half an hour, but I just want to get a couple of last little bits in. Um, I had to trim down what I was, uh, what I sent across to you because there was, as I got going, there was so much more I wanted to ask you. But um, I, I, I told you I'm a rambler. I'm sorry. No, about it's that. fine. It's fine. It's totally cool. Um, yeah, when I spoke to a, a friend of mine who's a powerlifter, she 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 got onto me about asking you about your views on the the Russian 
Norwegian and Westside methods and just your uh, kind of experience if you have used it, spoke to people who have, um, and just the kind of basics, the basic differences really. Okay, um, so I'm going to assume that when you're talking about Russian, you're talking primarily about Shiko. And when you're talking about Norwegian, you're primarily talking about how Dietmar Wolf trains the national team. Yeah. That's what um, yeah. Okay, so I've done both Westside and Shiko before. Um, Norwegian, I've read a decent amount about it, but not not as much as I would like to proclaim to be any sort of expert on the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as Westside goes, I think. Um, as, as far as raw powerlifting goes, I think there are definitely principles you can apply. Um, but obviously, I would take out stuff like only squatting to a box or doing 80% of your heavy workouts as some sort of good morning or um, using super heavy band tension. Um, the whole system, at least like the lower body work, is tailored towards building a really, really strong posterior chain, which when you have a suit to help you out of the bottom of a squat, basically doing the work that your quads would otherwise be doing, it makes sense that you just need a brutally strong posterior chain to support that much weight on your back and hip flexion. Um, so I think I think you can take the uh, the max effort dynamic setup and make some adjustments like Instead of only doing posterior chain work, doing more accessories for your quads and not squatting off a box all the time, not only doing good mornings. Um, and I, I definitely think you can make that work. Um, one of the one of the better raw powerlifters in America right now, um, Mike Hedleski, uh, he he went to DUV for a while, but he's um, he spent most of his time training with a West Side template adapted for all of me. Um, so I, I think you can use the basic Mac effort, dynamic effort template, but you need to make adjustments to it. Um, you know, and, uh, same thing for bench West Side preaches like hammering your triceps really hard, which is obviously important for a big bench, but when you don't have a shirt to help you move it, the first few inches off your chest, obviously you need to do more pec work as well. Um, so just little things like that. Uh, Shiko, I got really, really good results from that. Um, and I know quite a few other people have as well. Um, ben Rice, he's a 190 lifter who I think, I think he totals somewhere around 1,800. Um, I know if he doesn't still train with Shiko, I know he did for a long, long time. I'm pretty sure he still does. Um Again, I think that's something that can work really, really well. I like how volume-centric cent- it is. Um, I, I think something where a lot of people get hung up is they, uh, they try to throw too many bells and whistles into their program. Um, they're, they're trying to use a scalpel to do the job that a sledgehammer can do. Uh, so a scalpel would be something like some sort of really like specific accessory exerciser. Um, you know, really exciting loading scheme or something. And the sledgehammer would just be, you need to get stronger. You will do more work in the squat bench and deadlift, which is entirely what Chico is based around. Um, so I, I like that philosophy. The one, um, the one caveat I would give though, is that it's not something that would be particularly good to do unless you're already very technically proficient or unless you already have a coach. 
Um, I did an interview with Boris Shaco for my blog. And one of the things that he said in the interview that, uh, that really jumped out at me is that the main difference between Russian and American powerlifters is all Russian powerlifters have coaches. It's very, very rare to find one that doesn't. Um, and the ones that don't, don't tend to get very far. Um, but they have coaches that are there watching every set, every rep, making sure that they're always technically proficient. Um, and when you're doing just the sheer level of volume that they do with the classical lifts, then if you're getting that level of volume with a very high quality work, it can be very, very effective. If you're getting that level of volume with not so high quality work, if you're just going through the motions and your technique isn't great, then I think it's a great recipe to really run yourself into the ground. Um, as far as the Norwegians go, like I said, I don't know nearly enough about that as I would like. From what I've seen, it uh, it seems to be not so different from Shiko, except a little bit higher frequency. So most Shiko templates have you squatting twice a week, benching three times a week, deadlifting one or two times a week. Um, and the Norwegian stuff I've seen uh, tends to have pretty similar volume, but you would, but about twice the frequency. So squatting three, four, maybe five times a week, benching just about every day, deadlifting two, three, four times a week. Um, and also using more bells and whistles. Um, I've seen them do some work with chains and some reverse band work and stuff like that, which uh, you don't see nearly as much of in Chico templates. Um, but I think, I think the same general principles apply. Um, since it's still a very volume-centric approach without just a ton of variation, um, I think it's something that can be very, very effective, but um, you need to make sure you're a very proficient lifter before you undertake it, or you need to make sure you have a coach to guide you through it. Mm -hmm. Shit, them, no one of them Norwegians have taken like a house side. Jesus. Um, yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned your blog. Do you just want to give us a bit of a um, kind of a background on the blog and where everyone can kind of find your work and on, on social media? Yeah, the, the blog is gregknuckles.com. Um, that's going to be changing in a few weeks to stringtheory.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-E-O-R-Y, but that's not live yet. Uh, gregknuckles.com, G-R-E-G, and my last name's weird. It's N-U-C-K-O-L-S. Um, and, uh, social media, mm, the, well, I'm just Greg Knuckles on social media everywhere. Either Greg Knuckles or Gene Knuckles. And, um, the Facebook page for the site is Strength and Science. So, Strength, Ampersand, Science, Science. Um, you said you wanted some background on the blog. It really, uh, it mainly started as a training journal. Um, and occasionally I would just share my thoughts on the random subject as well. And I started noticing that um, people were reading and sharing those posts and no one cared at all about my training. <laughs> and so I went through and did a big purge and just hit all of my training posts and just started writing more like article-esque posts and um it was really uh it was very organic uh, like i didn't 
lose any money to advertise or promote stuff on Facebook until uh, just like the last few weeks, actually. Um, I just started writing and people liked it. And uh, that inspired me to write better because I was like, well, if a lot of people are going to be reading this, then I better make sure it's not terrible. <laughs> and um, my wife actually helped a lot with that. Um, she was the head of the college newspaper for the school we went to, and she's a copy editor. She was uh, very, very helpful in um, improving my writing because I'm not just naturally someone who has a way with words. Um, so she she helped a lot. Uh, not so much with with the information because like I knew stuff and I could I could speak relatively well, but there was a disconnect in terms of transferring that you know into a blog post, um, and so that was that was a really big thing. Um, there are a lot of people out there with really great stuff to say and they just don't know how to say it. Um, so for people who are trying to get into writing and blogging, uh, the the main advice I would give you is one, start writing. Uh, looking back on it, I don't really think I wrote anything worth reading until maybe like a year ago or so. And that was two years into writing pretty frequently. So just start writing, write all the time, expect that it's going to suck and that's okay. Uh, and then get someone who really knows how to write well to check your stuff and uh, give you suggestions on how to improve it. Like a, um, like a wife? Like a wife, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think something that also really helps with that is find someone who is not nearly as invested in fitness and lifting and stuff as you are. Uh, my wife is my training partner, but she's not, she doesn't nerd out on this stuff nearly to the same degree I do. Um, and so when she reads it, things that, uh, things that I just take for granted, um, she has questions about. She's like, well, how did you get from here to here? Because uh, I'm just assuming that people come to what I write with the same background knowledge that I do. Um, so a lot of her helpful criticisms were, you know, how to make this stuff make sense to people who don't have the same degree of background knowledge. Because, I mean, if you're passionate enough about something to write about it, you probably know more about it than your audience does. And so if you're writing in a way that would appeal to you and not to your audience. It may be great stuff for someone like me, but it's not going to reach a large number of people. I understand. Well, you and your wife are doing a brilliant job. Just want to say that. But we've I've kept you I've kept you Thanks, for uh, nearly forty five minutes. So I'm going to let you go. Um, but just before I round up, just thank you very much for giving up your time. Um, and I'm going to encourage Thanks everyone. For it's all right, no problem. I'm going to encourage everyone to go read your blog and just keep in, your, keep in their head that you are only 23. And that's all, <laughs> I'm, that's all I'm saying. So thanks very much, Greg. Um, appreciate your time and your insight into the, the things that we've talked about. So yeah, that's it. And I'll, um, thanks, I'll round Have up. A good no problem. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for checking out the Pace of Performance podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Greg. Just before we go, I just want to remind you that you can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on the Podomatic app. 
you can jump over to paceyperformance.co.uk and listen to all the previous episodes on there. And you can now listen to all episodes on YouTube. And I will speak to you in the next episode.